Okay. Um, in addition to the slides, I was privileged yesterday to listen to a conference. I wasn't able to attend the conference, but for those of you who have ever heard of um, Dr. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk, he's been speaking about trauma for at least 25 years that I've heard him. And so I didn't have time to integrate all of uh, what I learned yesterday from him into the slides, but I am going to be referring to it because it really is the latest information. Um, he's working, in fact, with the DSM-5 committee. People here are familiar with the DSM. It is the um, fat book that uh, gives all diagnoses and all the symptoms for all the diagnoses. It comes out about every 15 years, and there are some interesting changes that reflect our knowledge about trauma that he spoke about and that I'm going to be speaking about today. One of the things that he mentioned, um, I think, parallels something that, you know, has been going on in the community. Um, there's a sense that when kids are really in trouble, I hear from a lot of parents Maybe they were sexually abused. And I've heard some people say, maybe we're thinking that too often. Maybe all of a sudden it makes sense to us that this explains why somebody would go off the derech or why somebody would become depressed. And I didn't really have, I didn't know, you know, how do you assess something like that. So I just wanted to let you know that um, what Dr. Vanderkoll said yesterday is that according to the United States Centers for Disease Control, if we eliminated chronic early trauma, they are now defining that as the number one health crisis. And the reason is, is that if we were to eliminate it, we would see 75% decrease in substance abuse, assault, domestic violence, depression, and suicide. I think this is extremely dramatic. Later, I'm going to talk to you even about some of the issues from a physical health perspective that have been linked in the longitudinal studies to, you know, this very serious crisis. The original post-traumatic stress disorder that we're all very familiar with, um, this is now in your handouts, by the way, for people who want to follow and potentially want to take notes. Post-traumatic stress disorder was really uh, started in the DSM-3, I think, in the 1970s. And it was set up for Vietnam War veterans. Okay, so it was not set up for people who have been traumatized. Okay, um, the major symptoms had to do with re-experiencing. Commonly, we might think of that as flashbacks, nightmares. Those would fall into the category of re-experiencing. Um, they might have some sort of shock or stress. If somebody, for example, heard a backfire, this was the common one that we were taught when we were taught about post-traumatic stress disorder, a sudden bang from outside might send somebody who had returned from war into a real trauma because they might be experiencing a gunshot, something like this. Um, avoidance, this kind of psychic numbing, or um, depersonalization, dissociation. One of the very upsetting things that Dr. Vanderkolk said yesterday at the conference, for any of you who have worked 
with survivors. We know how serious the depersonalization, the amnesia, and the dissociation could be. I was shocked to hear yesterday that there is actually a movement by certain psychiatrists to get rid of dissociation as something valid in the DSM-5. I hope they won't win because for any of us, we know we're very familiar with these symptoms, and it's very frightening that people are still to this day questioning this. Um, the, the hyperarousal kinds of things, the startle response, sleep problems, difficulty sleeping, these were all of the things that we were very familiar with when it came to post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, today we're looking at potentially a new concept that has been called CPSD for complex post-traumatic stress disorder or DESNOS, which is on the next slide, disorders of extreme stress not otherwise specified. This is all in your notes. This would be more for rape trauma victims, people who have suffered child abuse and neglect, and what we would call today incest trauma. Now, Dr. Vanderkolk actually is proposing something else that is more focused on children. And so what I'm going to do today is kind of reference that when I go back to from the adult to the children stuff. What he is talking about, what he is pushing for in the DSM-5 is something called developmental trauma disorder. This is very relevant to the people that we work with because the emphasis is on the what happens in terms of the child's development. And this is what we can see in children and what we experience with the adults that we work with. The goal of introducing this diagnosis is to capture the reality of this clinical presentation in children and adults who are exposed to this chronic interpersonal trauma. And thereby, it would help clinicians develop and utilize effective interventions and for researchers to study the neurobiology and also the chronic transmission of interpersonal violence from generation to generation. Whether or not they exhibit PTSD, these children have developed in the context of ongoing danger maltreatment, inadequate caregiving systems, and are ill-served by the current diagnostic system, often this leads to misdiagnoses, repeated inpatient admissions, unrelated diagnoses, and an emphasis on behavioral control. It was thrilling to hear a psychiatrist say to, I don't know how many people they estimated were on the telephone, but a few hundred from all over the United States and a few hundred from other countries in the world. It was wonderful to hear a psychiatrist say, we are over-medicating. We are looking to control people's responses, and what we need to be doing is helping them cope with what they're dealing with. Especially, it's a horror what we're doing to children, this concept of just looking. I heard Dr. Lefkowitz talking to somebody about that with ADHD when, you know, we were talking today. You know, this issue that somebody's out of control, so we medicate them? 
what, to make them not have any feelings? Then how do they work these things through? It was wonderful to hear it from a psychiatrist because the psychiatrist that I sent to, I sent to because I know they're going to put somebody on medication. I've never had a psychiatrist say to me, no, Dr. Atiyah, the patient doesn't need medication. Um, and so I'm going to refer to, you know, some of the things that, that you know, he is talking about and, and, you know, that he has seen as we go f uh, forward. He is, for people who are interested in Googling these kinds of things, in using the Internet, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk has written more articles, you know, and done more research than most people. When we look at complex post-traumatic stress disorder, these disorders of extreme stress not otherwise specified, many of you may have heard from Dave, um, about Dr. Pelkovitz. He speaks a lot. He's a member of this community, and he's been part of um, referencing and coming up with uh, the criteria for this diagnosis. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder, again, did not include depression, anxiety, self-destructive behaviors, re-victimization, medical concerns, somatic concerns, and substance abuse. And so the problem is we see all of these symptoms and we start treating all of these symptoms and if we don't understand that they're all really coming from one thing, then somebody has an anxiety disorder and then they have a depression diagnosis and then they engage in substance abuse and we're not really helping them because we're not really getting to the core. Sometimes people will say to me, what is it that determines how serious somebody's symptoms are going to be. How do you know what, you know what to expect? So we do know a few things. One of the good things in the last 10 years is we've had the advantage of what they call longitudinal studies. So for those of you that don't know the difference, most of the time when you read an article, you're inter they're interviewing adults and they're saying, so what happened to you 30 years ago? 40 years ago. And as we all know, certainly I know as I get older, memory is not really so terrific. And there have even been some studies relevant to this about therapists being able to plant memories in people. So the longitudinal studies that look and follow groups of children who have been abused and go forward giving them interviews every year and looking at what is going on in their life are where we really get the very best information because we're not relying on memory. So these are some of the things that make a difference. The age and the stage of the trauma. The earlier that the trauma took place, the more severe the development. When somebody, and I do not mean to make light in any way of how horrific one horrible rape would be for any woman. But that will not have the same severity as a child who has been molested for most of her young life. So the age is very critical as we look at the developmental impact. The relationship of the perpetrator to the victim is a huge issue because it determines overall meaning for this child. 
the complexity of the trauma. One of the cases that Rabbi Milstein and I work with is a combination of severe physical abuse for about 15 years. And then in this family that lacked boundaries with this horrible physical abuse going on, on top of that, 10 years of sexual abuse. The victim's role in the trauma. This is sort of builds into something that we'll both be talking about on and off today, which is the sense of shame. It is very difficult to get victims to realize that they were not to blame. And often, they don't fight back. They don't know how. They're afraid. But what comes up in therapy so often for them is, but I should have, maybe I should have yelled, what was wrong with me? What was my role in this? And their interpretation of that can so impact their, their view of themselves. Duration, obviously, how long it went on, the seriousness of it, in other words, again, not to make light of inappropriate touching, but would not be as severe as the more severe kinds of rape, etc. Um, interesting final one, the support received at the time of the abuse and at disclosure. I want to talk for a minute about that. I've worked with many people over the years where there was another person in their life who wasn't able to get them out of the situation that they were in, but validated for them that it was wrong, validated for them the horror, and really tried to find other ways to support them. That is a mitigating factor. At the time of disclosure, unfortunately, very often the non-offending parent, if, it's, if we're talking about an incest situation, or let's say parents who hear about something that went on with a rabbi or in a school, often the response is, you're exaggerating. It can't be. Why are you trying to get attention? These are the most horrible things that anyone can say to a victim. It is a re-victimization. And now they're going to shut down and they're not going to talk to anybody about it because now you've blamed the victim and they'll shut down for another 10 or 15 years before they're really going to open up and talk to somebody. On the other hand, fast response, supportive response, can really have the opposite impact. I have two sets of people in my practice. I have the people who suffered in silence for 25 years. And I have the people who were getting out much sooner. You all are getting out much sooner and getting them into therapy. And we have a great chance. We have a great chance. One of the things that I also want to really encourage you not to do is assume that since their studying is going well, we don't need to get them any help. It's a big mistake. They can look good on the outside, and they're crying on the inside. When we look at diagnostic conceptualizations of this, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or DESNOS, 
what we're looking at here is this kind of dysregulation in affect, like mood, and dysregulation in terms of physiology. So what you might see in a child, which is a little different from what I have up here, which is what you might see in an adult, is that you see problems in normative development. Competencies, they are related often to this dysregulation in affect. One, they may not be able to modulate or tolerate or recover from extreme affect states. So when they have fear, anger, shame, that could be brought up by anything, these are things that people have, their inability to recover might be something that starts to raise for us a red flag. Now, you obviously have to be careful. Lots of kids throw tantrums. Okay? At what point does it become excessive? Okay? That's what we're talking about here. Disturbances in bodily functions. So you're talking about things like sleeping, eating, elimination, overreactivity or underreactivity to touch and sounds. Now, overreactivity is something we might all expect, right? If you have a trauma victim and you even just say, oh, as they're walking out the door, and I've seen therapists make this mistake, and you kind of just gently put their, you know, your hand to sort of escort them, and they jump, okay, we might all think right away, oh, you know, possible abuse here, but underreactivity, somebody who actually sort of goes a little limp at a touch, underreactivity, think about the implications of these things for marriage when we're dealing with adults. And this starts in childhood. Um, diminished awareness or dissociation. I, I want to talk just for a moment about dissociation. Um, on the very extreme end of the dissociative spectrum, we have dissociative identity disorder, what used to be called multiple personality disorder. Very extreme. Um, I've seen it in uh, including my 15 years of inpatient psych and substance abuse, I've seen multiple personality disorder five times. But since we all dissociate, there are these other levels of depersonalization or what some people call the outer body experience. You might hear something from a client like, sometimes I feel like I'm watching myself, that I'm not really in my body, but I'm sort of floating overhead looking down at myself. That's an example of a trauma-related dissociation. Let me give you an example of how we all dissociate. All dissociation means is that we dissociate our awarenesses. So when you're driving up to the Catskills and you remember crossing the bridge and then suddenly you're at the exit, where were you for a half an hour or 40 minutes? Part of you was driving, and part of you was thinking about what you're making for Shabbos dinner. So you're dissociating. We all dissociate. It is a survival technique that a lot of children use. 
if you give regular dissociative, there's a, Frank Putnam came up with something called the dissociative experiences scale, and what they've discovered is even in non-victims, people dissociate more in childhood and adolescence than at any other time. And so people can get stuck in dissociating if it brings them some relief from the pain of what they're going through. However, we do not have the mechanisms for being able to selectively dissociate. And so sometimes we dissociate other awarenesses during that. And one of the things that they think explains re-victimization is that people may dissociate danger and danger signals because they're dissociating the whole experience. And so by dissociating what is a danger signal, these people are more at risk for becoming re-victimized. A lot of the work that therapists who have lots of experience working with survivors do is a lot of education. A lot of the really bad work that people who don't know what they're doing do with survivors is get them to retell their story. This is not a group that should be treated by clinicians that do not have specialized training in dealing with survivors. Um, they also might have an impaired capacity to describe emotions or bodily states. I don't know how many of you remember, but years ago, for those people that have been doing this for decades, um, we used to have, it was very popular, it was called a feelings chart. Some of you remember that, like smiley faces feelings chart? Believe it or not, I still use that chart in working with my survivors because their inability to connect what they're feeling to words is really very profound, and I find this to be very helpful, and it reduces their frustration and anger that they can't really say what it is that they're feeling and what's going on in terms of their bodies and their moods. We also have with children this difficulty with attention and behavior, okay? So here you might have the child exhibiting, again, impaired normative development. So we know what the norms are for behavior and attention. These aren't shocking. Schools know what to expect from kids in terms of normative development. So when you see a child who is preoccupied with threat or who has an impaired capacity to perceive threat, including misreading safety and danger cues on the playground, with other people, you should be alarmed. Something is wrong. There's an impaired capacity for self-protection. You know, we may be used to teenagers doing risk-taking or thrill-seeking kind of behaviors. It is abnormal to see that in an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old. This should be raising red flags all over the place. Maladaptive attempts at self-soothing might include rocking, not chuckling, rocking, and other rhythmic movements. Habitual inattention or automatic or reactive self-harm behaviors. It is not normal 
for any kid to be taking his fist and hitting his face or taking his head and hitting the wall. There are no, nobody should look away from that. And I've seen people look away from that time and time again. I hear about it, unfortunately, in the 25-year-old later stories. An inability to initiate or sustain goal-directed behavior. You know where you might see that in children? You know, the inability to complete a Lego project, an art project, or, you know, or something like this. And so these are the things that we're used to seeing more with adults. Inability to, you know, to handle their feelings of anger. We all get angry. I think Freud was right about that. Self-destructiveness, addictions, self-harming behavior. I think addictions, we know, are heavily, heavily correlated with abuse. I think that what happens with the kids, as they describe this to me, is they start out experimenting. And unfortunately, today, so many of our kids experiment. And then there's a connection that gets made. Like, I don't have to feel so bad about myself and my life. This isn't made consciously, but there's a relief. It provides a tremendous relief. And so somebody else who might just pass through, okay, experimentation and move on with their life, somebody that's getting this kind of relief might get stuck. We've spoken a little bit about this, the dissociative episodes, the depersonalization. One of the things that's very interesting and helpful for me in working specifically with the firm community, which of course now is all that I work with, but it's the great support that I have in working with all of you. There's great rabbis that I work with and other community leaders. And one of the ways that I've actually discovered depersonalization is because Sometimes I'll meet with somebody, let's say, who's already met with Rabbi Milstein on a Monday, and then I'm meeting with them on a Thursday, and we've communicated in between, and I'll start saying, oh, I, you know, I hear this happened, you know, with Rabbi Milstein, and they'll be a little vague. Oh, I, I, I remember something about that, but I don't remember it really so well. Texting, which is something... We, we never learned about in social work school. I work with a young population, about half my uh, clients, and I get a lot of texts. And believe it or not, one kid who suffered, interestingly enough, very, very severe early neglect, but not sexual abuse. Very severe. His mother couldn't hold him. So for the first year, and for those of you that know anything about it, attachment, etc. It, it sets up just really a terrible developmental situation. She was mentally ill, you know, when she gave birth. And um, he would text me, and he texted me twice, extremely suicidal texts. Extremely suicidal. I, of course, went crazy and tracked down the poor people from our place that I'm looking for and finding, and you've got to find this kid, and I got their suicidal text, and they're running and jumping, and they find the kid, and he says, what are you talking about? I'm fine. So then, because I understand these kids, I have to do one month no drugs or alcohol to make sure we're not talking about a drug-induced or alcohol, you know, induced. And this is how I discovered twice some pretty severe depersonalization was because of texting. You're not going to see that in a textbook, 
But if you work with young people, you better be able to text. That's why I had to learn. My daughter was not able to teach me, but my clients taught me. <laughs> this chronic sense of guilt is so severe and so pervasive that it really can negatively influence someone's whole life, their view of themselves, and their view of the world. It, it pervades everything. They believe, now, if you're very analytic, I don't know how many, I know some of you have had some pretty good analytic training, um, but one of the things that, you know, that we're grappling with here is that potentially, unconsciously, you're looking to be in control. Okay, because if you feel guilty and bad, then it's about something you did, which puts you in the driver's seat here. But the overwhelming feeling of guilt is only destructive. You can't, I, ha, I make a distinction between guilt and regret or remorse. And the difference for me is that somebody who has regret about something or remorse about something can do tshuva and move on with their life. And someone who is guilty is frozen in guilt and really has difficulty moving forward with their life. They have these ongoing feelings of intense shame. You know, it's very hard to socialize or develop relationships if the overwhelming feeling that you have about yourself is guilt and shame. Why would anybody want to be friends with me? Um, chronically abused individuals often incorporate the lessons of abuse into their sense of self and self-worth. Christine Courtois, you can see one of her articles that I've referenced here from 1979. Um, she's another one for people who are really interested. She's done fabulous work. Also for probably about three decades, Judy Herman is another one. So for people who really want to, you know, get into this, those are the, the three people, I think, that are really the tops at this over, you know, over the long haul who've really, you know, paid their dues and, and done this for us so that we can learn and we can be better clinicians. Um, very critical thing that um, I heard Christine Courtois talk about about three months ago. I was at a psychotherapy conference in Washington, D.C. There were 5,000 psychotherapists. It was an amazing experience. I felt at home there in a way that I only feel in Israel. It was an interesting experience. Um, so Christine Courtois talked a lot about, and Bessel van der Kolk talked more about it, this concept of survival brain versus learning brain. When a boy or girl is sitting in yeshiva and they are being chronically abused, they are in survival brain, which is a lot of stress. And they can't learn or play when they're in survival brain. And uh, again, another client that Rabbi Milstein and I have was very convinced that she was really dumb and stupid because she couldn't learn. Additionally, the people who abused her told her she was dumb and stupid. So if you hear that and then you hear that from your youth and then you have this bad experience in school, it's what you believe. Fortunately, since his work with her, she's been able to see that since she's learning with him, she's capable of learning. It's a whole new experience for her. 
Um, when the abuse happens at the hands of a caretaker who is also responsible for putting food on the table and who may also do, and I put this in quotes, nice things for the victim, the confusion about the self and the world impacts the, the girl or boy's entire belief system. And so moving forward, as they get into relationships, there's this, does love equal abuse? Do I need to be abused in order to be in a loving relationship? Obviously, this isn't conscious, but this is part of the confusion, and I think once again explains a lot of this re-victimization. Most of you I know have worked with survivors, and what is very typical is seeing that they have had multiple episodes of abuse, that there has been this re-victimization, which then feeds back into the shame. I've had so many clients say to me, okay, I hear what you're saying about why I wasn't responsible when I was a child, but what about as an adult? Now I should be responsible. See, I am a bad person. Maybe I did ask for this. So the, the domino effect of how all of these things work is so traumatic for all kinds of development. Additionally, alterations in relationship to others is, you know, very critical and something that goes on all the time tremendously impacts marriage, ability to raise children, and all of these things that are so critical. Um, here, what you might see again in a child, in children's relationships, I'm going to take a minute, is that the child exhibits impaired normative developmental competencies. Okay? So you might see a child who is very preoccupied with the safety of their caregiver or their loved ones. Okay? I've even, I work with many kids who are preoccupied about the safety of the people who abuse them. Difficulty tolerating reunion with them after separation. You see this on the, um, they've done some really good one-way mirror tapes where they've shown the reunion of even very small children with abusive caregivers. And you've seen this inability to tolerate the reunion. Again, you see the two extremes, the going limp and the over-clinging, the, over, uh, the fear of, of loss. The persistent negative sense of self, including self-loathing, helplessness, worthlessness, ineffectiveness, defectiveness, the belief that there's something wrong with me. Remember, the child's only mirror about themselves is their parents. So if the parents are reflecting back that you're defective, the child is going to believe that he or she is defective. Um, Physical or verbal aggression towards peers, caregivers, or other adults in children is something to be alarmed about. Um, promiscuity, attempts to have intimate contact, not just as we get older, but even weird physical intimacy. Um, excessive, excessive reliance on peers or adults for safety and assurance. One kid was brought to me too young for my practice. I don't work with small children. Um, 
But one of the things that, that happened was the child came into my office, now I'm a stranger, and, and tried to climb into my lap. So this bizarre sense of, you know, lack of boundaries and looking for some sort of nurturing and reassurance from a stranger, that's not normal. Um, impaired capacity to regulate empathetic arousal. These are not people that are empathetic listeners, that have close friends, that can be very, you know, open and giving. Our mistake is we might look at that naively as some sort of narcissism rather than, again, the misdiagnosis, rather than this is a result of abuse. The somatization and medical problems are surprising to me. Um, here are some things that I learned recently about what can happen medically. The long-term studies show that people who have been abused as children have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, broken bones, a lower response to psychiatric medication, greater addictions, and higher rates of STDs. They secrete two kinds of hormones more than other people do. One is cortisol, the stress hormone, leaving their bodies in a constant state of stress. Sex hormones leading potentially to promiscuity, to inappropriate relationships, to an inability of knowing how to come across to others. And now we're going to talk about, um, from Rabbi Milstein, the anatomy of the spiritual and emotional decline. Thank you very much. Uh, first thing is I really want to offer a compliment to those who are in attendance tonight. Uh, it's not a pleasant thing to talk about, and probably the major reason that I'm here uh, is because Dr. Atiyah asked me to be here. Uh, I didn't do it so willingly, at least not at the start, but of course the clincher was the clients that we do share and the abuse that we have seen, it just calls out that someone's got to do something. And whatever it is that we can do, I think we're mechuyiv to do. I think our society is set up to defend people who are accused of crimes. I think our society is set up to be able to offer an opportunity for people to clear their names, but not for children. Children often do not have an avenue. They have no medium of communicating with the rest of the world. They're very alone. They're very isolated. And so I think that this is a tremendous mitzvah that we're here. And having said that, I want to make one more very important caveat. I'm not suggesting for a moment that our community is rife with cases of sexual abuse. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the Jewish people, especially the Orthodox community, has a special problem with this issue. If anything, it is still my belief, despite the fact that I've seen so many cases, and many people will apply the adage that to a carpenter everything looks like a nail, I don't think that in our community there is a larger incidence of these issues. I think perhaps it's smaller than the world at large. But we are Rachmanim B'nai Rachmanim. And we are people who have taught the world to care for the elderly and the infirm and those who cannot take care 
of themselves. And therefore, I think it's a chayv kadosh. It's a holy obligation, every single one of us, that we have to do whatever we can do for people who are otherwise literally defenseless. They have no place to go. Having said that, I'd like to uh, start with what we call the anatomy of a spiritual emotional decline. And again, when I first started and became involved, it didn't emerge that there were patterns that you could recognize. But as I started getting more and more involved in the field, there are patterns that seem to emerge. And the uh, points that I'm going to make now can also serve as early warning systems for parents and caregivers. Number one is an abrupt change in the parent-child and teacher-student communication. Oh, slide. There we go. Yeah, there we go. Right? And that's something which should be a warning system to anybody. It should be a warning sign to anybody. And that is that once there is any kind of abrupt change in a child's life, obviously it's a warning signal. If there's an abrupt change in a child's scholastic performance, obviously it should be a warning signal. Now, why is it that they would realign their relationships with adults? And the first thing is they have a dirty secret to keep because the guilt of what they're feeling is so immense. So they have a dirty secret to keep, and therefore they don't want to have too much contact with people who might in some fashion elicit from them that which is not forthcoming. Adults also may suddenly achieve whole new identities in terms of a sexual identity. Children who have been exposed too early to sexual experiences, who perhaps were extremely innocent prior to that, suddenly they realize that everybody has a sexual identity. And suddenly people who were just people, generic people in their lives, suddenly they look at them differently because they have had sexual experience. A profound reduction in, in attention span. This is something that Dr. Atiyah spoke, about which she spoke, which is very, very important for us to recognize, that many of these children, they simply cannot learn, they cannot focus, they cannot sit in a classroom, A, because of the haunting effects of what has happened, and like this this uh, uh, terrible scene of trauma replaying itself in a loop in their minds, and B, often what they'll do is they will daydream as a coping mechanism, meaning that if they allow themselves to try to listen to what the teacher is saying in the classroom, then those terrible thoughts will reinvade, and therefore they're going to somehow create this fantasy world in which they literally get lost in their daydreams as a defense mechanism against those horrible thoughts and continued re-traumatization. What we find in the Frum community, and this is why I think uh, it really was, was a very good idea that we have a therapist and a rabbi presenting, is that you're going to find in our children a pretty drastic and sudden decline in prayer and observance, in davening and observance. And this has many, many reasons. But for, the first and foremost is, is that these children are blaming themselves for what happened to them. As Dr. Tia said before, they may said, why didn't I react differently? Why didn't I run away? Why didn't I scream? Why didn't I push away the perpetrator? Right, so they may often, they will almost always blame themselves. Once they start blaming themselves, then they become defective in some way. So the victim feels spiritually tainted, religiously unworthy. How can I daven? How can I face HaKadosh Baruch Hu today? How can I go out and do a mitzvah appropriately? How can I sit down to a seder and participate? So because they've become alienated from it, because they're ashamed of what they've done, and they feel extremely unspiritual. They feel in some way very, very dirty. Therefore, they cannot face God. How can you face God when you are that kind of a person, a sinner, so to speak? And the last thing to realize, and this to me came uh, really not, as not much of a surprise, is the, religi the religiosity of the abuser can often create an extreme negative association with the religion. You know, they don't, these kids very often are not 
going to sit there and overanalyze the situation. Something feels bad, it feels bad. You come to associate whatever was present at the time. And if it was, unfortunately, chas v'shalom, someone who's of great authority, we all know that chilul Hashem is according to the status of the mechalel. It's according to the status of the one who's performing it. So if the person was a religious symbol, then you know what? Then all religion becomes tainted and the chilul Hashem becomes complete. You're going to find, as Dr. Atiya said before, a social isolation from peers. Now, it's all, not only for psychological reasons. It didn't change. There you go. They changed. Yeah, so it's not only for psychological reasons, but it's also because of religious reasons. Again, because they are somehow tainted and they're not equal to the other people in their lives, and therefore they cannot associate. They may not want to, listen to this, ruin other children because there's something wrong with them, and they may, they've taken a chryas for the klal suddenly, and they may not want to ruin other children. In addition, you have to recognize that children who are suddenly discovering sexuality at a premature time when they're very, very young, suddenly all their friendships and all their acquaintances become sexualized as well. And now suddenly when they're traumatized from whatever sexual experience they've had, they, they cannot act interact normally with their own friends. This is something I think is unique to our community and I think is very important for us to realize. When we see children who have a sudden fear of public nudity. Now again, Khalilia, we're at Tsunuyim, and we try to be Tsunua, but there are places where it's kind of almost normal. For example, a mikvah. A child who suddenly develops a fear of going to the mikvah, someone should look in to see whether or not there may have been a sexual abuse that took place. It could very well be that the mikvah, Dafka, has been the crime site. And therefore the child is terrified of going back to a mikvah. Bathrooms can become stigmatized to them. Children may have fear of going to bathrooms, public bathrooms. Ch children may have fears of, of, of relieving themselves. They may not be able to relieve themselves in a normal way because, again, that becomes sexually uh, stigmatized in some way. I think something that we have found on a pretty regular basis is we find children sometimes who, ex who exhibit extreme weird modesty in the summer camps, meaning they become extremely protective of their exposed body parts that even maybe are normal in other kids, they become extremely protective of them, and that usually, I think, should be a warning signal for us. If I'm saying anything that's off the beaten path, I'm trucking Dr. Atiyah to set me straight here. I'm just a layperson. This is something that I think, again, goes underappreciated in the community. When a child is abused at a very young age, it not only, of course, is violent and traumatic, but it also awakens very often the, the sexuality in the child. And the premature onset of sexual drives is something which is very destructive because after all, if you look at the way we develop as people, those things don't usually kick in until later in life. So what does a six or a seven-year-old kid do with a sexual drive? What is it that they're supposed to do with it? So what you're going to find is very often it's going to lead to a sense of self-experimentation. They may have experimentation with touching themselves. And in our community, again, this is something which is really tremendously prohibited and it's taught as being pro uh, tremendously prohibited. And therefore, again, what happens from that is that goes ahead and reinforces the guilt feeling that the children have. Voyeuristic activity. People who, children who tend to look in as other people are doing private things, such as in, in, in bathrooms and in other types of places. And by the way, uh, those of us who are mechanchim, those of us who work in the yeshiva system, there's been tremendous improvement in the way yeshivas design their bathrooms today, meaning there used to be gaps in the partitions, and that has changed today because people are starting to realize that there certainly are certain children who are having trouble with this. Children who have been abused are going to, I would think, have a lot of trouble with that. Inappropriate touching of younger children. They inform the abused becomes at some level the abuser. 
Now, there are many reasons for this. The simple reason is, is because the child has a tremendous sexual drive that the child cannot handle and is therefore looking in some manner, shape, or form to actualize it, to act out on it. But also it could be that this gives them a feeling of power that the person who was the victim is now turning the tables and in fact becoming the abuser and might allow them somehow to get a, get a handle on themselves and on life. All of this, uh, oh yeah, and incestuous behaviors. Again, when there's no outlet for a child who has tremendous sexual drives, a convenient victim might be someone in their own family. So again, you're going to see, and I think something that we've seen over and over again, is that children who are themselves, themselves abused are going to abuse their own family members. All this, as this is building up, keeps accumulating guilt in the child. And none of us has an unlimited capacity for any kind of severe emotion. And what happens is that eventually the accumulation of guilt is going to result in a deepening of the depression. And as the depression deepens, a child looking in order to escape that terrible feeling might do self-destructive behaviors. And of course, heightened sexual activity might in fact be a sign of a child using that as an escape. Because oddly enough, for, the, for some of these children, their violations have been so severe that the only thing that allows them to escape it is another intense experience, as intense as the violation, which would be, in fact, performing certain sexual activities. So again, they use that activity as an escape, and in those cases, I think we're talking about a tremendous danger of addiction to those activities. Now we're talking about, which is more my domain, we're talking about off-the-derrick behavior. A child who is doing these things, who may be letting off steam, so to speak, in a very horrible way by abusing other children, or indulging in certain activities that he knows is usser from the Torah. So what that child might do is they might start to question the ideology, the religious structure that prohibits, thank you, the religious structure that prohibits this activity. So in, in order to I'm trying to cope somehow, so if I can't limit the behavior because I'm incapable of limiting the way I'm behaving, so what I might do is I might try to change the world around me and say certain things might be okay. How do I do that? By questioning the basis upon all, which all these laws were formed. So what you might have is, at early stages, a development of certain questions in a child that you would be surprised that these children are asking. Very often, a lot of these children who are abused over a period of time, one of their justifications in terms of trying to take down the Yiddishkeit is, why do bad things happen to good people? I, I take that always as a very great sign of trauma. When I'm in a school, when speaking before 350 high school kids, and out of the blue, some kid raises their hand and says, why do bad things happen to good people? I usually ask the staff, the, the faculty, to look into whether the, everything's okay with that child. Because a child that's very, very young, you know, you and I, we might be intellectually interested in that question. And we, we're very intellectually, in, how do we understand the juxtaposition of justice of God and yet certain people suffering? That is a very stimulating question. The Rambam speaks, everybody speaks about it. But when you have a little child asking the question, it seems to be, they seem to be a little too young for it. I think often that is a sign uh, that something needs to be looked into. They may show a discomfort with religious authority. They may act out against people who come to symbolize religion. They may not want to go to shul. They may not want to speak to a rabbi. They may be recoiling in the presence of a rabbi. They may, if they're more expressive and on some level ironically healthier, they may outright be angry at God and at Torah. They may come right out and say it. They may come out with anger. Again, on some level it's a little healthier. I'm not saying spiritually healthier, although I think it might be there as well, at least they're able to verbalize what it is they're feeling and what's going on in their lives.
Disruptive classroom behavior, again, is something because they're challenging authority. They're, again, challenging the system that created the rules that is leaving them in the lurch, so to speak. The result of all this and the resulting guilt of it and the additional this, uh, depression is going to be the intensification of escape behaviors. They're now going to look for more intense activities in their lives, more intense escape behaviors, and some of them might indulge in extreme sexual encounters. They might indulge in extreme things which have to do with violence and domination and things which really, really are very foreign to someone like me, but I hear it sometimes for the kids, and it's absolutely incredible the things that some of these kids are getting involved in. And they're going to clubs where they have mosh pits, and people are hitting each other with chains. And I mean, all these words are, were new to me, but I learned them from these children. They need these extreme, intense activities in order to take their mind off what uh, has gone on in their lives. And of course, this substance abuse might be self-medicating type behavior, however you want to look at it. But of course, substance abuse, as Dr. Atiyah said, is often... Uh, goes hand in hand with, with uh, child abuse. And uh, I think the numbers that you just read off at the very beginning, to me, were extremely, I'm still trying to recover from them, because to me, it was extremely disturbing. In its, in its, in its extreme state, these children may very well go ahead and create an alternative theology. Now, we have found some children who go to such tremendous lengths to try to change the system that brought about these laws is that they literally become involved in trying to create new ways of looking at religion and the world. Uh, we know of centers that opened up that take in children who are going off the derech to help them go off the derech. Now the children who are being caught up in this who are going off the derech, I understand them. But you have to understand also the person who founded this center and what that person was after. And that, I believe, is a classic case of this, of trying to literally change the world around them, change the perception of people, change the judgmentalism, change the way people perceive morality, change the balance of morality in the world. And it sounds like this very grandiose design, but ultimately they have nowhere else to go. And sometimes these children will do that. There's a young man uh, that I saw many, many years ago who, who was with our place a long time ago who went from becoming... Uh, really much healthier, and, and, and he was able to cope with his addiction in a, in a way that I think we all marveled at. And he married, he lived in Yerushalayim, had a family. I mean, we were so happy, and at some point in time, he became divorced, his entire life fell apart, and he actually now lives in a commune that espouses a religion based upon free sexuality. And literally, we're talking about some of the most aberrant behaviors that would be known to, to, to humankind. And I believe that this is a, another manifestation of what we're seeing here. Uh, I'll be back in a few minutes. In the meantime, I'll give back the floor to Dr. Atia. We're going to do this back and forth thing a couple more times, just so you don't get dizzy. Um, what I really wanted to talk about now was just before we get into um, treatment or something like that, is what I call and, and the literature calls the counter-transference pressure to disbelieve. Now, counter-transference, I'm using the sort of social work broad determination for counter-transference as any feeling that we have toward a client. Freud, as you know, used it much more narrowly, that it was just in response to what the client felt. So one of the things is, when we listen to somebody's story, it sounds so horrible, we have to recognize that we don't want to believe it. 
That is our ca- internal countertransference pressure to not believe. And so what I hear, I'm sending you this girl or this boy, but I think it's attention-seeking behavior. I don't think anything really happened to them. I think, you know, I think they're seeking attention. Now, I've never seen that in my life. At Holliswood Hospital, I treated over 300 survivors. Since I started working with this community, I've treated 32 and consulted in about another 20. I've never seen anybody as attention-seeking behavior say that they were sexually abused. Why would anybody say that? It doesn't even make sense. Okay, you want attention? Break a window. Have a tantrum. Why would you make up a story that I was sexually abused? The other thing that helps us not believe is an incredible lack of affect when a client or a school person, a kid, anybody you may be working with, when they give over their story. Most of the time, they have about as much emotion as I would have if I was reading a menu. Very rote, very shut down, and very lacking in feeling. And so I hear people say, obviously if this was true, they'd be upset in giving over the story. The idea that a lack of affect would lead to that conclusion, again, is wrong. That's part of our countertransference desire, almost to look for reasons not to believe it, because it is horrible to hear. We don't want to believe this. One of the things that also can lead to that is what a hush of person the abuser is said to be. How can we reconcile that? We can reconcile it by blaming the victim. Um, I want you to know that I have had, just to you know, give you a little bit about the perpetrator, I have had only four perpetrators that I've worked with, and I've been present only at seven meetings where the victim has confronted the perpetrator. In all of those situations, the perpetrator has justified their actions, not said they didn't do it. Some of the justifications that have horrified me the most are unfortunately the ones I remember and have nightmares about. The father who said, I wanted her experiences to be with somebody who loved her. The man who said, you know, all this stuff about, you know, boys and men not touching one another, that's just a societal thing. There's really nothing wrong with it. So in fact, when you do, in my experience, confront the perpetrator, that's a small experience, I have not received denials. I have received justification. There's only one article that I know of on physical abuse and not sexual abuse where they have interviewed parents along with children separately and ensured the safety of the children. And what was surprising about that article was the concordance of 
what everybody said. It was not what we would instinctually believe that the parents would deny it, but it was the parents pretty much saying maybe there was a slight lessening of the severity of the abuse, but overall, again, just saying he or she deserved it. I was stressed. So we, I, I implore you, if you ever hear this from anybody, there is no reason to not believe it. We're going to talk a little bit now about what we can do both in the pastoral community and in the treatment community. Okay. Um, this is this is my territory. Um, I am most fortunate that uh, I really have to thank Chaim Glantz because I think he introduced us quite a while ago. And really, I have grown so much from being able to speak with someone who's so available on a regular basis uh, that it's really changed the way I'm able to deal with people completely. And by the way, I would urge all of you who are like me, I uh, don't have a, a professional background uh, other than being, have, having smicha. Uh, I learned on the job, so to speak, from working with kids over the years. Yes, I've, I've taught for many years. I've, I've spoken for many years. I've been a communicator for many years. But I totally was out of my league. There's nothing like collaborating with someone who really, really understands and cares enough to help you understand as well. It's been invaluable. So really, thank you. Thank you very much. One of the most difficult things for us to deal with, as we said earlier, is the guilt that's involved. Now, Dr. Atiyah was machavim to the Archist Sadiqim. I don't know if she learned it or not. But she spoke before about this concept of a person considering themselves to be a chote, a sinner. And the Archist Sadiqim says, this is atzasa yetzer. This is really an approach of the yetzer hara. Because what do you do if you consider yourself to be a sinner? You sin again. <laughs> Right? So you have this overwhelming guilt that builds up in these children and they start to feel that they're sinners and they will never ever be able to somehow absolve themselves of the guilt for what they have done. They remain bad, bad people forever. So I think it is incumbent upon us, our, the, the from community, the rabbeim, the rabbonim, the spiritual advisors that the children have, that we have to help with this because guess what? the professional community is going to have a very limited ability to cope with this. They can throw some generalities at them, but we who understand the Torah behind it, I think we have a chayv kadosh. We have a tremendous responsibility to break this tremendous cycle of guilt and then sinning again. So, number one is, I think it's incumbent upon us to realize, every one of us, that a kadosh baruch is a vinu of harachavan. He's a kind and loving father. We say it before the Kriyashma. He's a vinu of harachavan. He's a kel agadoyel agibar But ultimately, he's there for us. He's a mechal kel chayim bechesed. A kadosh baruch we in Judaism believe in the concept of a kind and loving God. We believe a kadosh baruch created us for our benefit. It's in all the svarim and sifrei kabbalah and sifrei musa, sifrei chasidus. He creates for our benefit. So. The first thing to teach a child who feels so hated by a Kaddish Baruch Hu, is that a Kaddish Baruch Hu loves them. A Kaddish Baruch Hu loves them. Now it's difficult for a child to assimilate that knowledge, having gone through the experience that he went through. If Hashem loves me, why do you give me such rotten parents? So the next thing is we have to recognize is, is that a Kaddish Baruch Hu always has a plan. And the plan that he has is ultimately is to give us the maximum amount of 
esteem, actualization, ultimately pleasure from ourselves. Nach is from ourselves. Extremely important to teach that to a child. All pleasures that are worth anything, all intense pleasures that we have, all esteem is built upon a tremendous amount of effort. Those of us who are more familiar with the text, Nama de Chisufa, always, there's always a certain Lefum Tzara Agra, according to the effort of pain, such as the reward. We all have that. Everyone understands that. So in every experience, and these children really are no different, therefore, I like to tell the kids, average people are going to have average challenges in life. But truly gifted people and truly special people and people who have the ability to rise to greatness, they often get tremendously more difficult challenges in life. I'm going to share a very short story with you, which I think is critical. About um, eight years ago or nine years ago, I was in Denver, Colorado doing a discovery seminar. And we have a session at this seminar, at the discovery seminar, like a light session. It's called Stump the Rabbi. Now, for those of you who don't know what discovery it is, it's, it's for Jews who are not affiliated, who quite, might be quite disinterested in their Judaism, and somehow someone manages to bring them to this weekend seminar. We talk about the veracity of Torah, that, who the author of the document really is. This is what we talk about. So a lot of heavy sessions. A lighter session is stump the rabbi, you know, and I get up there and people throw questions at me, and I'm trying kind of funny, I'm flippant. And it's a nice session. People who like the seminar like the session. People who hate the seminar love the session because they're going to be able to get back at the rabbi, right? So I've been doing it for a while, and I'm pretty comfortable with it, Baruch Hashem. And I'm answering questions as they're being flung at me when suddenly a 16-year-old boy raises his hand and he stumps the rabbi. He said, Rabbi, why do I have such a rotten and miserable life? I said, what's the matter? He says, my mom, she's nuts. I said, I wouldn't get too excited about that. I know a lot of 16-year-olds who feel exactly the way you do. She said, no, no, no. He says, my mother's really crazy. I said, well, what do you mean? When I was three years old, child services came into our home, sued my mother, took me away from her, because you see, my body was covered with cigarette butt burns. When I was 10 years old, ironically, they gave her an attorney for free, and she countersued, and she got me back. And my life has been a living hell for the last six years. Why did God do this to me? Standing in front of 300 people, they look up and say, God, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> like, like, what do you say now, right? So someone, a great rabbi once told me that if you're up there and you have a little bit of an altruistic motive, if you're really L'Shem Shemaim just a little bit, Hashem helps you out because you're Shaliach Tzibur, you're representing the Tzibur, and the Tzibur always gets Siata Deshmaya. And a thought flew into my head. And I said, I can't tell you why bad things happen to you. I don't even know why bad things happen. I'm not good at this kind of thing. Number two, I said, if there's anything I can do to help you, I'm here. But number three, I said, this is the most important thing, and this is the point I want to make. If 25 years from now, I walked into a Barnes & Noble, and I saw that they had a best-selling book in their hands, they had replaced the 60 or so different titles that normally occupy the front window of the store with 200 copies of the same book. And the name of the book was How to Stop Child Abuse Forever. And by every account, it was wiping out child abuse in vast regions in the world. It was one of the most effective self-help books ever written. I told this kid I'd be the last person in the world surprised to see that this book had your name on it as its author. And you never would have written the book if you hadn't gone through it yourself. I want to make a very important point here. I think this is extremely valid in the way Judaism looks at the world. 
many of us look at the difficulties we experience. We just go, why God, why are you doing this to me? Instead of us remembering that he is Avinu Avrachman, he's a kind and loving God. Nothing happens b'mikra, there's no happenstance. There's always an intent behind it. An unlimited God has unlimited meaning in every challenge he throws our way. If we could somehow be made to understand that the difficulty we go through is going to get us to where we need to get to in life, is going to help us self-actualize and help us do the things that only we can do. No one will be able to do these things because they didn't go through these experiences and they're not us. So instead of saying, why is this happening to me? Say, okay, what am I being prepared for? I'm being groomed for. It makes the difficulty far easier to deal with. In my experience, in my experience, I'm going to tell you in a moment, but in my experience, I have to tell you, this is the only therapeutic approach that I have for kids who are in this much pain, and I could say near universally, once the kid heard it, and once they understood it, they were mine. They said, okay, there's a lot of wisdom here, what else do you got for me? And it really helped turn children. I wasn't going to bring up part two of the story, but because you raised it, I will. I kid you not, two and a half years ago, I'm in a place called Passaic, New Jersey, Eshatora opened the yeshiva there. There's a group of new recruits in this yeshiva in Eshatora in Passaic, New Jersey, that came for the first time to test out to see if they want to go to yeshiva. And one of the things I spoke about was this, and I told this story. I'm standing here, my wife is sitting, was doing shalashudas, and there's a fellow sitting at the end of the table there, and as I finish the story, the guy looks up and says, wow, that's so weird. Something like that happened to me, except it wasn't eight years ago, it was ten years ago. And I looked at him, and he said, well, I'm such and such now, however old he was. His math was defective. It was the kid who was now working at Disneyland. He's actually a Mickey Mouse. He dressed up as a Mickey Mouse, worked with children. He had been so terribly abused, and ultimately what he wanted to do in life was bring happiness to other children. And he told me that, I want you to know, Rabbi, I don't think I told you this. I was suicidal at the time. This is what the kid told me. He says, I want you to know, I don't know if you were the only factor, but you definitely helped save my life. Hashgach Apratis. Okay. It's a crazy story. I don't like to tell it all because people can't believe it, but I still get goosebumps when I tell it. As my friend Yaakov Solomon says, doesn't Milstey make up the best stories? <laughs> Reb Noach Weinberg, Zechreit always said that attaining greatness is the greatest pleasure on earth. Being able to push the human envelope of experience and knowledge beyond where it's been. To create real greatness, to create chiddush in the world, to bring absolutely new avenues of treatment and help to people is greatness. I'm going to embarrass Moish Binnick again. Moish Binnick, you're a great man. <laughs> you're a great man. It's, that's the truth. People who have new ideas, new concepts, and make it happen, this, these things were not available before. This is a, a brand new approach. Of course, now it's over many years old. But at the time, people who use their creative genius to help humankind, this is greatness. These children are capable of greatness. I honestly believe that. And greatness is the ability to change the world. Let's go a little further. We as from Jews, we take tshuva for granted. The famous story goes, a Rebbe is sitting with his Talmidim before... Yom Kippur, and he says, okay, Kindalech, it's time to do tshuva. So he had a very sincere kid who's sitting in the front row, and he goes like this. He says, okay. But he's right. But he's right. Tshuva is truly a gift. Tshuva is at once difficult, but it's also made by Kodesh Baruch Hu to be extremely easy. Tshuva is such an amazing gift to humankind, because when we wrong each other, 
It's very difficult to rectify the wrong completely. As an example, if one of you were to come up here and storm the podium and give me a smack in my face, and then a minute later say, Rabbi, I'm so sorry, I'm on this particular medication, and I just, could, I just couldn't bear it, you said something that really offended me, but really, I'm so sorry, I would never, and if I really believed this person and knew he was sincere, I'd say, you know what, I really and truly completely forgive you. But the next time he walks by, I'm going like this. Because <laughs> we're human beings. But Hashem says, Im kashani. If your sins are crimson red, red, those of you who have ever done laundry, if you ever get a red stain on something, it's very hard to get out. You know what? You might get the stain out, but it's not like it was before. It doesn't come back to the bleached white that it was before. It says Hashem, kashani. If your sins will be red, deep crimson red, there's no way of getting it out anymore. Kashele Galbinu, there's nothing whiter than the pure driven snow. It's like it never, ever happened. We uniquely have an ability in Judaism to understand that we can rectify, we can change the past. It's a very powerful thing. Children who are traumatized cannot believe this. People who are guilt-ridden cannot believe this. It is our job to communicate this and to get them to believe it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is incapable of holding a grudge. According, according to Halacha, according to Halacha, if someone gives a gift to a woman and he tells her that you are betrothed to me on condition that I am a tzaddik, that I am righteous, despite the fact we know that this man is evil, she requires a get. And the question is why? We know this man is evil. He said, And the answer is right there, right there. Shema hear her, believe I hear her tshuva. Perhaps he had a thought about tshuva. Wait a second. It's only a perhaps, and it's just a thought. What does a thought do? Don't you have to really go out and be mefarei tachet? Yes, in order to have a tshuva gemura, a complete tshuva, to wipe it out completely, you do have to go back, route it out, and have a kabbalah la'asid, and make sure it's never going to happen again. It's all true, right? But a tzaddik you become as soon as you decide that you want to do tshuva. It's just a hearer, a thought in your mind. You already have the status of tzaddik. You may have something to pay in the other world because you didn't wipe it out completely, but that's for the other world's sake. But in terms of our own world, in terms of where we are right now, you are considered such a tzaddik that this woman requires a get. Remember that. Very, very important. Reassuring the recidivist. Recidivism happens. Anyone, any one of us who has dealt with addicts, I see a lot of people in this room who uh, have looks of uh, recognition on their faces at this point in time. We all know that people slip, they relapse. It's the way it is. Sheva, Pama, Mipal, Tzadik, come. We're told that a Tzadik fools. A Tzadik is not someone who doesn't sin. A Tzadik is someone, despite the fact that they sin, they get up to try to rectify themselves once again. That's what a Tzadik is all about. So therefore, recidivism happens. It should be expected to happen. And people have to understand that they're being a human being. Whenever I get a call, there's a particular client that we, that we share who, who has an eating issue. And, and this client has made so much progress over the years with so many other issues and has tried so hard with... And every once in a while, you know, she'll call me up and say, Ah, oh, that's it. It's over. I'm finished. I always say, Welcome to humanity. <laughs> Welcome to the human race. That's what happens to us. This is the natural. It takes time. Of course, as time goes on, the challenges might become somewhat easier, but we must recognize that relapses are going to happen. And now I give you Dr. Atiyah.
Okay, here's what we're going to do because I see people were expecting maybe to be gone already and we're going on so, and some people are gone. Well, okay, I don't want to say that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to roll pretty quickly just through the depressed adolescent piece. It's pretty simple. And then we're going to finish up on some specific ideas for kind of what the community can do. Um, I picked depression because it's the most common issue, you know, that we work with. But you really can look at all of the things we've talked about tonight and how they relate to substance use. But this was an interesting article uh, by Danielson in 05 that looked at depression. And there were significant differences in kids based on abuse, the type of abuse, and gender that are interesting to look at and to understand. I'm just going to, you know, you all know how to read, so I'm just going to kind of zip through at this point. Um, physical abuse and sexual abuse together were much more horrific and had much greater psychiatric and psychological sequelae than either one alone. Shame was greater with sexual abuse than it was with physical abuse. Speaks a lot to our society. Uh, guilt was greater when the abuser was a relative. Big issue when it's trying to turn that around, you know, when you're working with people, right? Um, the duration of the abuse and the relationship to the perpetrator, those mitigating circumstances that we talked about earlier, increased depression. Closer the perpetrator the worse. The longer it went on, the worse. Same with sleep difficulties and depression. All of these things are related to those mitigating factors that we talked about um, early, earlier. Adolescents related to the perpetrator, so incest issues, had greater problems with appetite, thoughts of death, and overall helplessness. Females were more depressed than males across all categories. Um, again, it kind of that whole issue of uh, women in, internalizing, whereas men or boys tend to externalize, was kind of proven here. Um, and the guilt and thoughts of hurting oneself were uh, predominant in all females. What I want to talk about now is a, a really important concept that is gaining um, a lot of support, it's called ecological influences. And this is, you know, your second to last slide here. We want to look at what we can do, not just as therapists, but as community leaders, as teachers. And it's, it's interesting because they're showing that these things are quite important. Now, these are studies that are done in the secular world where we don't even have the intense community resources and social capital that the firm community has. So I think that even if they're finding small uh, help, a little bit of, this, of community work as a mitigating factor in the secular world, think of how much we can do here beyond because of the tightness of this community, because of the social capital that we can harness. Um, social support, relatives, close relatives, helping people not to feel isolated in their trauma, changing the world view of a young person, being a role model where no role model existed before. Now, in the secular studies, what they're talking about here is obviously the family, immediate family, 
is going to have the most. And they look at school and community and neighborhood as having some, they call it distal versus proximal. But we in the firm community have the advantage that our community is not so distal. <laughs> it's much more proximal, and so we can use this closeness, use the amount of time that somebody has in school, that somebody works with a Rebbe, to really foster some of these things in a much more aggressive way. Grandparents, siblings, have really been shown in all of these studies to have a tremendous mitigating effect, again, even if they're not able to stop the abuse. I have seen this time and time again in my practice where people will, when I'll say, you know, how did you survive all of this? I, I always find it more shocking that people are still walking and talking and I have a tremendous respect for these clients because of everything that they've been through. And very often they will talk about a particular teacher who took an exceptional interest or a Rebbe that stayed in touch with them. Often these were people that didn't know what was going on, so they weren't necessarily able to intervene. But the interest that they showed, the compassion that they showed, the love that they showed, was something that the kids carried with them into adulthood and that they report today having significantly changed their lives. It led to resilience. That's what we're talking about today. How can we as a community increase resilience? Teachers, again, are a huge resource. I think in this community, as well as in the secular world, it is usually teachers who are at the front line in terms of recognizing that something is wrong. It's really up to us within our school systems to create a method for teachers to be able to go to someone if they have a suspicion. And the nice thing is you don't have to have a suspicion of what. You can really go and say there's a developmental problem here. You don't have to start with, I think this kid's been abused, because frankly, many of the symptoms that you might see could have lots of factors or lots of explanations. But it is our job, as Rabbi Milstein said, for all of us to try to identify these things. My big problem in my private practice is that I don't have enough of Rabbi Milstein because as I'm sure you could feel sitting there, if every one of my clients could hear his passion and be imbued with his belief, his belief in the goodness of each person, I know that they would all just be so much healthier than they are. So if anybody knows how to clone Rabbi Milstein, I need one in Lakewood, one in Square, one in um, Muncie. I have already Brooklyn. Thank you. <laughs> okay, we're up to, we're up to Lamaisa. What to do Lamaisa? As I said before, the reason I'm here is because I don't have a, a, a nicer way to say it. I'm sick and tired 
I, I, I have seen so many kids, and again, I'd like to echo what Dr. Atiyah said before. I'm sick and tired of some people really not believing that there's any kind of abuse in our community. I'm sick and tired of seeing children who had, had no one to turn to, who had no one in their lives. And the reason is very simple, because who are the natural allies of a child? It's parents. It's siblings. And when they're the ones who are involved in the abuse, then that's it. These kids have absolutely nobody. So protecting these children is our first priority, and I, I really can't say it enough, and I'm not going to be shrill about it. And again, I'm not going to claim that every kid is abused. I'm not going to claim that our community is rife with this. That's not what it's about. But where there is such a child, how can we as Jews just sit quietly on the sidelines and not get involved? I think it's extremely important. Those of us who are sitting in the room who are in a position to do so, please, it's important that we educate parents to pick up the signs of abuse if there's someone else who's abusing the child as well. It's extremely important that any behavioral changes in a child not go unnoticed and not go un untreated. This one is, is, is my favorite uh, pet peeve. And that is that there still exists a tremendous stigma in our community for getting professional help. And the truth is, if you think about it, if you just to make a little bit of a simple calculation, what's the downside of asking for professional help when it was not necessary? All right, there might be a little downside. Maybe the kid feels a little that, you know, uh, set aside in some way, or maybe, you know, be hard to do a shidduch in some way. But what's the downside of not getting help when it's critically important? You were literally harming these children. We're talking about We're not allowed to stand idly by as our, blood, our brother's blood is being spilled. To return a sense of emotional health and well-being to someone. The Chavetz Chaim says that you have to cure him because of that. You return the Neshama to somebody. He's lost the Neshama. They lose the Rolam Haba. So what about returning someone to functionality in life, to being able to get married and have a family and, serve and, and live life as normal people? When it comes to schools, schools are consumer-driven. Make no mistake about it. Schools are consumer-driven. They're a product. And I'm not saying that they're not unique and they don't have a special place in our society, but they're, they're a product. And if parents were to make sure that their schools would abide by simple safety practices, a whole lot of perpetrators would not feel safe enough to abuse children. If parents were to go to walk through, through schools and do the obvious things to make sure that those little windows that are in the doors of the classrooms, they should be uncovered. <laughs> it's simple. Why do you think they have those windows there? That's what it's for. To make sure that there's almost no possibility of an adult child yichud, that it, there's a seclusion there that really, really should never take place. There's absolutely not a good reason why an adult and a child should be completely alone in a school. And whether we're talking about a teacher, we're talking about an assistant teacher, we're talking about a cook, a, cook, a chef, a janitor, it doesn't make a difference. There's absolutely no reason. A psychologist, thank you. <laughs> a lawyer, while we're beating up on professions. <laughs> I think that schools could do a whole lot in terms of training their personnel to understand that these things will not be tolerated by putting it into their contracts. In other words, if there's going to be a questionable instance where there was a yichud, where there was an inappropriate aloneness between an adult and a child, those are grounds for immediate dismissal. There's no reason for it. I was in a school in England, I was telling Trish, called JFS. It's a very, very large, very secular school. The new principal happens to be an observant Jew.
And when they built this magnificent building, it is a state-of-the-art school. I've almost never in my life, I see thousands of schools. I've never seen a place like this. It's, it's uh, just, I think it's west of London. An amazing, amazing place. So I visited the principal's office, and it's completely glass. The entire office is from every direction. Anyone walking anywhere can see what's going on. So I asked him, I said, what an interesting design. Who came up with it? He said, I did. The architects gave me a secluded office. I don't want a secluded office. That's not healthy. We need to start thinking that way. Unfortunately, we need to start thinking about these things. We need to make schools places that are unsafe for the perpetrators and safe for the children. There should be mandatory in-service training that people have to become sensitized. People who are direct caregivers, people who are educators, people who are dealing with children, they have to know what child abuse is about, what constitutes child abuse, and how it will not be tolerated. And then finally, and this is a, a real, I, I cannot give anyone a moral system how to decide their questions and their shyless. You have to ask, you know, and, and think about it on your own. But you know what? I think it's critically important that there should be no case of sexual abuse of any child anywhere in the world that goes unreported. I'm really sorry, but I think that's why we're in the trouble that we're in right now. And whatever the proper avenue is going to be, you need to really search your own soul. You need to maybe ask your shyless, do what you need to do. But you know what? Chas v'sholem, to walk away and to leave one of these terrible crimes undealt with. Chas v'sholem in our community. Uviarta harami kirbecha. We have to be so careful, because let's remember... We, you and I sitting here, are often not only the last resort, but the only resort that these children have. And if we're not going to make sure that these things are dealt with, that it's reported to the proper people, then you know what? It's going to just go on and on and on. So I urge everybody sitting in this room to take an, a proactive stance on this. And if you know of something, even if you suspect something, don't just walk away. At least investigate. At least make sure that someone is on the case. I want to thank every one of you for coming. It's been really a schuss for me to be here. And a Kodesh Baruch should help us. We should not have to have meetings like this ever again. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we'd like to make a minion for Marav. It would be a tremendous favor for me. I happen to be a Chiyuv. Tumiyanim, also a Chiyuv. I think we have enough for Tumiyanim.